Welcome to Specs Speak Science, the scientific podcast hosted by a rotating cast of chemists and industry experts. From highlighting the hidden chemistry in our everyday lives to discussing relevant industry topics, Specs Speak Science looks to deliver informative content to the scientific community. With that, please enjoy this installment of Specs Speak Science. Welcome to today's podcast. We're going to be talking in honor of Earth Day this month. We're going to be talking about heavy metals exposure in the environment, how we get exposed to heavy metals, how they get into the environment. First, let's talk about what are heavy metals. There are metals like cadmium, lead, arsenic, mercury, chromium. They're all metals that have a toxic effect in the human body. And the roots of exposure to humans can be injection through drugs or pharmaceuticals or accidental exposure, you get stabbed by something. You can breathe them in from air pollution, indoor air pollution, outdoor air pollution, uh, drugs and pharmaceuticals, or you can get heavy metals through smoking if your tobacco, your cigarettes, or whatever you smoke have heavy metals in them. You can have transdermal contact, that means through the skin. So you can get lead through your cosmetics. There was an article quite a few years ago about lead in lipstick and mercury in mascara. So you can be exposed to heavy metals in that way. You can also be exposed by transdermal drugs like patches or anti, uh, accidental exposure where you go to maybe a body of water that has a very high amount of particular heavy metal and it uh, transfers through the skin. You can also have ingestion, and that's how most of us on a daily basis are exposed to heavy metals through ingestion. What we drink, what we eat, what we swallow, accidental exposure, things like that. So how did these heavy metals get into our environment, get into our food, get into our water? Well, it breaks down to three possible routes. There are the unintentional routes. These are natural sources. There are natural sources of mercury, natural sources of arsenic, lead, etc. in the environment. So you could be exposed through natural elemental deposits. Or you can be exposed through bioaccumulation. Certain plants and animals will bioaccumulate in their tissues different heavy metals and then if you eat that plant or animal you become exposed to that particular heavy metal. Then there are the intentional sources of exposure. Somebody actually made it a point uh, to add or to expose humankind to heavy metals direct intention. These can be things like adulteration and counterfeiting. So uh, Specs did a study not too long ago about heavy metals and spices. And in some cases, those were direct intentional counterfeiting or adulteration, where lead oxides or different heavy metal complexes were added to spices to bulk them up. You can also have over-addition or addition where it's not noted. So somebody adds something to a product which is legal, but they add too much. So those are intentional. And you kind of have the gray area in between. This is the quasi-intentional. These are the byproducts of human activities, either current or historical. So maybe in the past, we used heavy metal pesticides, but now those fields are still contaminated and other things are being grown in it. You can have cross-contamination. So farmer A uses a heavy metal pesticide, farmer B uses no pesticides, but the wind and the water kind of cross-contaminate things. And then there's just process contamination, wear metals from different pieces of equipment wearing into the products that we eat and drink. 
Then we have to look at what are the heavy metal sources. Today we're going to talk about lead and give you a case history of some lead in the environment. There were no real uh, natural expo uh, exposures for lead other than through human activity. So humans are pretty much responsible for putting lead into our environment. And there's been widespread historical use, paint, cosmetics, uh, gasoline, pipes, silver mining. And there's been intentional exposures to lead through medicines, cosmetics, adulterants. Lead is one of the most documented ubiquitous toxic substances in the world present. It's found in soil, plants, water, and air. And it's the industrial activities and lead products that basically changed what was a solid immovable element into this very highly dispersed toxic pollutant. Now this started way back in history and by Roman times, lead was used in daily life. They had lead water pipes, they had lead tableware, lead cosmetics. They made sugar out of lead to sweeten different uh, wines that were going sour or going bad. So there was a lot of lead use, and this continued through the Middle Ages. I, I think we all know the story of Elizabethan ladies and, and Queen Elizabeth I who would paint their faces pale, ghostly white with, with lead paints. Well, the use of lead expanded and continued, and when we discovered the New World, that did not stop. The very first lead mine was established in Virginia in 1621. And up to 2006, there were 11 million tons a year being mined in the U.S. of lead. There are many, many mo uh, modern sources of lead pollution. They're in our inheritance through the ages, and it will probably be our legacy to our children as well. During the Industrial Revolution through the beginning of the 20th century, the largest sources of lead pollution were industrial emissions, lead paints, lead pipes, and pesticides. Well, this all changed during the 1920s with the introduction of tetraethyl lead into the automotive industry. Tetraethyl lead addition has been described as one of the greatest public health failures of the 21st century. In 1850, tetraethyl lead was discovered by a chemistry professor at the University of Zurich. And during the 1920s, all the automakers in the U.S. were facing very stiff competition. They all wanted to win the race, to have the fastest running engine, the fastest performing car. Well, a General Motors, Motors chemist, Thomas Midgley, found that if he added tetraethyl lead, or TEL, it allowed engines to run more smoothly without any knocking. And this then heralded the birth of a new product called ethyl gas. From the onset, his colleagues and many of the other scientists in the industries were concerned. There were uh, a lot of letters written back and forth about, is this wise? Because by the 1920s, the dangers of lead were pretty well known. The first childhood death attributed to lead paint had been reported in 1914. And by the time of the launch of ethyl gas, the League of Nations had already banned interior lead paint with lead in it. So, by the mid-30s and 40s, this tetraethyl lead, or the leaded gasoline project, was pretty firmly established in the automotive industry. And just a century after it was discovered, tetraethyl lead became the most major pollutant of lead in the world. Now, despite growing health concerns, in 1959, the U.S. Public Health Service actually approved a request to increase lead levels in the ethyl corpse gasoline. So they were given permission to up the lead levels. By 1960s, you saw the first investigations and hearings into the restriction or banning of lead and gasoline, but it wouldn't be until the 1980s that officially leaded gasoline was phased out. 
1980, the Academy of Natural Sciences stated that leaded gasoline was the greatest source of lead pollution in the atmosphere, and it was estimated that daily intake was approximately 0.3 milligrams per person from this pollution. So we were getting a very large dose of lead. Unfortunately, our legacy of lead still persists. Many buildings around the world <laughs> have uh, decades, if not centuries, worth of lead paint in them, covering them inside and out. Well, one of the biggest problems with lead is water because we use a lot of water. The human body is over 75% water, and there's less than 2% of the world's water that is actually fresh water, and only 1% of that is uh, usable because the others are lo locked up in glaciers. So since the human body can only sustain about five days without water, then fresh water becomes a very important resource. So children are most susceptible for lead in drinking water. And up until 1914, drinking water regulations were established by individual states. Well, from 1974 to today, the EPA has acted as the federal government's arm of protecting drinking water. In 1991, the lead and copper rule was imposed by the uh, EPA. This limited the concentration of lead and copper in public drinking water at the consumer's tap. So this was how much lead and copper would get into the water from the, the pipes and, and the delivery systems. The action level is 15 micrograms per liter. And if a public water supply exceeds that action limit, then appropriate treatments must be devised to reduce the lead levels to below the action limit. Well, in 2015 and 2016, one of the biggest news stories around the country was the public health disaster being uncovered in Flint, Michigan. The story was that for decades, the city of Flint had obtained their water from the Detroit Water and Sewage Department, the DWSD, who pumped that water from Lake Huron. And the DWSD was following the guidelines for the lead and copper rule. They treated their water with organophosphates. This is a, a food-grade phosphoric acid. This actually will coat water pipes and reduce leaching of lead and copper into the water supply. So if there are old lead pipes, it creates a barrier or a coating. And while Flint was connected to this water treatment, they actually received this, uh, this treatment, and they had copper and uh, lead levels that were within the EPA guidelines. But in 2014, Flint was undergoing some economic crisis. They had financial burdens, and a decision was made to switch their water supply from Lake Huron to the Flint River. Well, the residents of Flint and the surrounding areas did not have a particularly good impression of the Flint River. It was actually known not to be pretty trustworthy. It was pretty uh, unsavory. It was polluted. It was, had the reputation of being very dirty. So this was not the most stellar, pristine water source that they could have chosen. The water itself in the Flint River was up to 19 times more corrosive than the water of Lake Huron. And it didn't have those organophosphorus treatments. And the water of the Flint River was uh, actually treated with ferric chloride to reduce some other pollutants, which increased its chloride content, and it made it even more corrosive. So it ate away of that protective coating that had been established. By April 2014, the city had switched its water supply to the Flint River. And within months, residents were reporting dirty, brown, smelly water coming out of their taps. And they would go to the offices with jars and cans of this water, showing them how awful this water was coming out of their taps. 
By the summer of 2015, scientists were called in and they started to find high level, uh, level, lead levels of lead in the water. By the summer of 2016, Virginia Tech began studying lead levels in the Flint water and, and by fall had found that more than 40% of the homes in Flint, Michigan had high lead levels. By September, they recommended that the state of Michigan should declare emergency, that the drinking water in Flint was unsafe for consumption. What they were basing that on was something called the 90th percentile level, and this was the most significant measure of contamination, meaning that 90% of the homes would have a lead level at the threshold and 10% would have levels above it. So that means that 90% of the water should have, have passed the safe drinking water levels. And the action level for drinking water, like we said before, was 15 micrograms per liter. And when it was hooked up to the Detroit water supply, Flint often measured at 2.3 micrograms per liter, so it was well under the safety limits. But at the time of the crisis, the 90th percentile of Flint's water supply was 27 micrograms per liter, a little less than double the acceptable limit. And some of their samples were reading over 100 micrograms per liter. In fact, one extremely high sample was found to have 13,000 micrograms per liter, which would fall under the EPA's designation for toxic waste, which is 5,000 micrograms per liter. Well, the public was shocked. It was horrified. There were demands made to improve clean water access, and the government pledged billions of dollars towards water quality. Unfortunately, the reaction of the scientific community was one of a little bit of disappointment and resignation. Scientists had been speaking out about lead toxicity for well over a century, but often these reports of lead contamination or lead poisoning fell on deaf political ears, and they were then silently logged into journals. During the last two decades, 1.1 million studies concerning lead exposure have been reported or published, which equates to 150 research studies published every single day for the last 20 years. Flint was not even the first major lead contamination event in the country. It was just the, one of the most publicized and documented. At the height of the Flint controversy in 2016, it was revealed by CNBC that the EP found only nine states report routinely report safe lead levels in their water supplies. So that means that 41 states consistently have bad levels in their water supply. 41 states had action levels exceeded the safe limit within the last three years. These states reported higher than acceptable levels of, level, uh, levels of lead in public drinking water. And it, a news report issued at the end of 2016 said that over 3,000 areas in the United States had higher lead levels than in Flint, Michigan. And in some cases, those levels were twice as high. And just at the tail end of the Flint coverage, it was announced of a water crisis in schools in Newark, New Jersey, where we happened to be. The lead levels coming from school fountains and taps often exceeded the levels of, found in Flint, sometimes up to 100% more. Most scientists and experts agree that the most positive thing to come from the crisis in Flint was a renewed public awareness and focus on lead exposure and contamination, and also an awareness of leg legacy infrastructures. That means all the old pipes and transitways and waterways that we've inherited. The story of, of Flint is a cautionary tale. It's the story of the lead in our lives, which has not been properly addressed with this latest crisis. The real story is our daily exposure and the burden from all the sources of lead we come into contact with each day. It's a story with all the states with high lead levels in drinking water. It's a story of all the schools in the United States with outdated lead plumbing exposing children to lead in the classroom. 
And while high amounts of lead publicized recently put a face to the problem, it did not adequately show the tragic public health event that, uh, that it didn't occur in a vacuum. The crisis also didn't show that there are many other stories and sources of lead that we are exposed to each day. The average person exposed to much more lead in the environment they live in than just because of the water. It's the dust, it's the air, it's the food, it's the medication we ingest. It's just it's more, so much more than the, the water we drink. Thank you very much. Spec Speak Science is presented by Spec Certiprev, a leading manufacturer of certified reference materials and calibration standards for analytical spectroscopy and chromatography. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating the podcast and subscribing for future installments. Similar content such as application notes, research studies, webinars, and more can be found at specsertiprep.com. Thank you for listening to Spec Speak Science, and we look forward to bringing you future episodes.